Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking with Their Mouths Full. I'm Nightingale Nguyen. And I'm Michael Chan. And today you are listening to our second ever pandemic era episode. Woo! Woo! No, no woo. I hate this pandemic, but seriously, I hope you are all staying home and staying safe. And if you're unable to stay home, that you're practicing social distancing because it can save lives. Speaking of which, I am currently part of a brand new campaign called Stay at Home Heroes Canada. Uh, You can learn more about them at their Instagram and Twitter, which is at S-A-H-H Canada. Basically, we are... out here to encourage everyone to help plank the curve by staying home or by practicing social distancing. Uh, we are showing everyone what we're doing at home through videos. And uh, we have quite a few interesting stories out there, not just about people staying home, but we have videos from uh, frontline workers, emergency workers like doctors and nurses. We also have, um, sad to say this, but we do have some people who have contracted COVID-19 as well who are telling their stories. And uh, each one of the stories from all of these heroes are very powerful and I do personally believe that you should all hear them. So again, that's Stay at Home Heroes Canada at S-A-H-H Canada. Uh, In the same vein, uh, as you all may have heard, we are now all being encouraged to wear some kind of face cover, a scarf, scarf or a mask when you go out. And to that end, my friend Leland Mitchell, who's also known as Lelando Calrissian, is selling masks. Uh, His Instagram account is at Lelando Mitchell, that's L-E-E-L-A-N-D-O-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. I'm just going to really, really quickly read his Instagram post. So, Be kind and badass. Hey, you guys, I know it's a scary time for a lot of people and everything in Canada is pretty uncertain right now. But one thing that's really gotten me through this is that we're all in this together. So I'd like to offer to any person who is an essential worker that's still on the job a free mask. Sadly, they're not surgical grade, but able to fit and change filters. Uh, template included. If you'd like to purchase a mask, they're $10 each or pay what you can if you can if you're in a tight spot. Keep your eyes peeled for more styles as I make them. I'll be offering glass visiting lobby pickups located at Richmond and Spadina, that's in Toronto, or shopping via Canada Post. There you go, guys. So if you need a mask, and you want one that looks really stylish because Leland makes costumes. He's an amazing cosplayer as well. Head over to at Lelando Mitchell. All right. We are a food podcast, so let's get on to the food. Just because we're all staying home doesn't mean that we're not going to introduce you all to amazing food to eat. Today, I have in front of me a couple of Sangjin Bao, and they are from a place called Jing's Bao, which is at Commerce Gate which is a popular plaza near Leslie and Highway 7 that's filled with lots of restaurants and cafes, plus a good amount of office space. The exact address is Units 65 and 66 at 505 Highway 7. This is 
technically in Thornhill, but people basically consider a part of Richmond Hill. Now, I only recently found out about this place while looking for something to order while stuck at home, but from what I can find online, they opened last year replacing a noodle joints at Commerce Gate. The owners seem extremely passionate about Sangjin Bao, which is their specialty. Their website, jingsbao.com, that's J-N-G-S-B-A-O.com, has an entire section dedicated to how they're made and their history. Uh, here's a quick excerpt. <clears throat> Sangjin Bao is made from semi leaven dough wrapped around pork, but the lean-to-fat ratio must be 7 to 3 and mixed with gelatin that melts into liquid when cooking. Wrapping a nice sangjin bao needs a lot of practice before being skillful. Chopped green onions and sesame are placed atop the buns during the cooking process. That sounds good. And uh, I also want to mention that Jing's Bao has other Shanghainese specialties. So I also ordered their Shanghainese noodles with spicy chicken and their Shanghainese noodles with spicy meat, which I believe is pork. Both dishes come with noodles, meat, half an egg, baby bok choy, and broth. Now, I do need to admit something, guys. Uh, I actually made this order yesterday since they're currently not open while we're recording this uh, they actually open at noon, and we're recording before noon. But in terms of the noodles, they look so good that my wife and I kind of um, ate them last night. <clears throat> but I, I, I can tell you that the noodles are, are very springy and very delicious. The uh, egg is cooked nice. The meat is nicely marinated and tender. It's And the broth is not too salty. Uh, has a bit of kick because it's spicy and everything just mixes together well. But I do have the Sangjin Bao in front of me, which I've nuked in the microwave. Let's see how they've held up overnight. Night while I'm... Mm. Wow, they did hold up. Oh my god. Anyway, so I've got a history. You have a history, right? Yes, I do. Yep. So, the Sanji Bao, it is a well-known Shanghainese dish that is known for being crispy, juicy, and delicious. It's basically a whole symphony in your mouth, as Michael explained, with the savory and also its juiciness and the crispiness. It is actually one of the most common breakfast foods in Shanghai since the early 1900s. So basically, this popular breakfast food has been around for over 100 years. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So according to Jingbao's Instagram, Sanji Bao first appeared in a water sales center named Lao Hushao, which can be interpreted as Tiger Furnace. It was then introduced to tea houses in Shanghai in the mid-1920s. At the time, tea houses were social places for wealthy people and celebrities. Thus, Sanji Bao became popular. Isn't it amazing how there's so many regions in China and that there's so many staple dishes? Like we've had dumplings, Wuhan noodles, to name a few, and plug our episodes. <laughs> and we hope to share more dishes with you. Once this pandemic is over, of course. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. I wish I was in front of you sharing this delicious Sangjin Bao, which has a nice doughy top with a fried bottom where it had, was touching the pan and the nice... No, nah, I don't really need to share with you. I'll just order my own and eat it by myself. Thank <gasps> but sharing is caring, Knight. Mm-hmm. It is. Come on. Mm-hmm. Sigh. 
All right. You know who else I want to share Song Jinbao and Chinese food with? Who? Our guest. We have a guest. Knight, introduce him. All righty. So our next guest is a multi-talented person, very focused, super hustler. He's going to share a story about how you can take one focus, apply it to another, and basically your dreams can actually come true as long as you just say yes. Introducing Matt Kim. Hey, Woo! Hello guys. You also know this guy's voice from Pandoodles, from our Pandoodles episode. So, Matt, how's it going? It's going good. In the hood of my house. <laughs> wow. So, guys, I, I would like to mention that Matt, of all four Pandoodlers in our Pandoodles episode, I would like to say that your voice was the sexiest. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. But, um, yeah, how's... Uh, How's staying at home for the pandemic? It's not bad. Um, I mean, it has its ups and downs, of course, but uh, I've tried to make it as productive as possible. Um, oh, that's good to hear. What yeah. have you been working on? Uh, well, I've been working on some Pandoodle scripts, editing, um, and also been working on some machine learning project. Ooh, nice. So just circling back to the food, have you... Um, had Shanghainese food or Sangjin Bao? <laughs> Can't say I have. So, what kind of Chinese food do you eat when you do eat Chinese food? Noodles. Uh, I have had my fair share of Baozo, but not the specific one that you're talking about. Mm. Maybe I have and like I wasn't aware of it, but I do like Chinese noodles a lot. Do you have any uh, favorites? Uh, I'm very bad with names of restaurants, but there is this one on Young Street that Willick showed me that I do mm-hmm. like a lot. I, I kind of just look at like what's in the the dish itself, like when I order. And so, in terms what, of the ingredients, what kind of ingredients do like with uh, do you like with your noodles? Uh, braised beef, uh, spice. I don't actually like the numbing spice that goes in the noodle sometimes, mm-hmm. so I. I prefer restaurants that allow me not to put that in and kind of give me the choice. Mm-hmm. So, what about Korean food? I could eat that every day. Do you have a? Do you have any favorites? Definitely kalbi. Ooh. Uh, yes. Yeah, short ribs. Uh, so good. If I could eat that every single day, then I would be a happy man. Do you know yeah. how to make it yourself, or do you go out for that? To be honest, I don't know how to make it, uh, but you can buy it pre-marinated here. Um, it's not too difficult to marinate either. It's it's mostly just like soy sauce, garlic, and a couple of other things which I'm not sure of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's good stuff. So so uh, actually, let's go way back. Where were you born? I was born in Toronto on College Street at the and Women's College Hospital. I was uh, I was born in St. Michael's. Oh, yeah. that's why they named you Michael. Part of it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and did you grow up in Toronto? No, I did not. Oh, where'd you grow up? I so I mean I lived in Toronto until I was about three years old, and then my family and I moved to New York City. Oh. Um, and then we moved back to Toronto for a year when I was six, and I grew up around Hamilton in this little town called Carlisle um, for about a year. And then we moved back to the U.S., and I mostly spent my time living and growing up in uh, kind of 
Koreatown of Washington, D.C. Like, think about it like as uh, Korean Markham, except instead of for Toronto, it's for Washington, D.C. And a bit more suburban, I guess. I had no idea. I had, uh, they had a Korea area or Korean area in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised. So what's it like? Is it just very, very Korean? Are there like a lot of Korean like shops and restaurants? or Yes, there are a lot of Korean shops and restaurants, um, even more so now than when I initially grew up here. Um, mm-hmm. You can't go to a plaza here without seeing at least one Korean restaurant. There are a handful of Korean chicken places and another handful of Korean barbecue places that are very competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so their food actually ends up being really good because of this competition with a large Korean population. Um, I think it is actually some of the best in the U.S. Um, L.A. is also good as well, though. And even in Sunnyvale in California, there is a spot as well. And in Toronto, I would say the Korean food in Finch is best. Finch. Uh, well, yeah, no... Lots of uh, lots of Korean food there. Wow, man! Uh, now I'm thinking that uh, when we're able to travel again, definitely want to visit Washington D.C. and try some Korean food. Let's see what you're talking about. So, I oh mean, yeah, there's so many nice places to eat in there. But uh, what about at home? Did your parents cook a lot of uh, traditional dishes? Yeah, it's kind of a mix because my mom is um, she's Korean, but she's also she also really came to live in Canada when she was like nine years old, so it is a mix of, oh. of a traditional Korean dishes and um, I guess white dishes like lasagna. Um, lasagna so is I, my favorite, by the way. It's like my favorite I, yes. food of all time. <laughs> lasagna is great. And what about, uh, I guess, cultural traditions and stuff like that? Did you grow up with a lot of that in your life? Usually that would be a part of my like bigger family gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I did have cultural, traditional influences, uh, especially from my grandparents and our larger family would still practice certain things like, uh, you know, like New Year's where you mm-hmm. receive that red envelope. It is very similar to, well, not just similar, it is influenced by Chinese culture. Um, oh. And the more I learn about other cultures, I, I see that Korea really is an in-between of like Chinese and Japanese like culture, which makes sense geographically. Um, it's interesting to see and compare that with the other cultures. But within your, I guess, your day-to-day life, you didn't, uh, I guess, feel your Koreanness. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how else to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like. Did you speak I did, Korean I did, at home? I did. I it was a mix because my dad is still. Uh, he came. He's he's pretty Korean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did have that influence, like on a daily day to day basis. Um, especially at the dinner table, I feel like food was really the center of that cultural influence. Just mm-hmm. things like uh, in Korea, it's like very important to eat foods hot. Um, so just one thing I remember from my childhood is like when I was eating a hot soup, I would complain that it's too hot, but then my dad would be like, that's good. <laughs> so you need to be able to eat your food hot. <laughs> and, you know, cause we use like a hot stone pot 
for soups and like a metal spoon and everything and it's just all very much centered around keeping our food hot and that being like something to be like proud of being able to eat even mm-hmm. if it burns the roof of your mouth <laughs> do you have a high i guess heat not spice but like temperature heat tolerance now that you're an adult because of all that uh i guess i do i don't really know <laughs> <laughs> so what was, i don't what complain about, anymore you know <laughs> i uh yeah i can't take uh, high temperatures very well. I would have to, so. you know, I'd run an experiment, you know, sit side by side with some other people and be like, all right, let's see who can bear this hot soup better. Maybe you guys can do that, like, uh, pen doodles, like IRL video or something. <laughs> yeah, we're not, it's not a, the traditional spice heat test, it's the actual heat test. Yeah, the actual heat test. <laughs> see all of us, like, turning red and going, oh! <laughs> I'm burning! Like, actually! actually burn. <laughs> I, I think I need to go to the hospital! <laughs> so, so what about, like, going to school? Because you lived in such a predominantly Korean area. Did uh, Were you and the other kids, I guess, very Korean? Or was it a, a, a more traditional American <laughs> upbringing? Um... America's a very strong culture, so even being Korean, it was more like being Korean-American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we definitely did have a Korean-American culture and group here. Uh, so I, I, did, I did end up usually hanging out with a lot of other Koreans because it was a predominantly Korean area, and our friend groups kind of did circulate around that. But we still, like, we were Korean-American. So it's not like we only spoke Korean with each other and only hung out with other Koreans. It was kind of like any other like ethnic group within America where we would kind of speak a mix, mostly English, with a bit of Korean, and also still hang out with people of all other races as well. But we did kind of have like that center, you know, like you, you could see like there was still a, a group, you know, like a, right. a Korean group within your school of people who hang out with each other. Um, and uh, I think church played a big part of that as well. Even though I, like I was kind of like one toe in, one toe out of that kind of part of it. Which uh, religion was this? Uh, Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Okay. Was uh, most of the community religious or just a segment? Uh, I would say the majority of the community was religious. Yeah. And what about pop, like pop culture? Did you? Were you guys mostly like influenced by American pop culture, or was there some Korean, uh, I guess, pop culture shows or whatnot in there? It really was a mix, depending. Like there were the Koreans who really loved African American culture and were like, yeah, hip hop, mm-hmm. and there were the Koreans that were more like whitewashed and were like into. To be honest, they were more into like uh, Christian folk music, um, oh, wow. country, Christian country music. And then there were those who were totally like, I love K-pop um, as well. And like, I remember my friend, a lot of my friends were like that, actually. A lot, a lot of my guy friends were like, they would have like uh, IU as our profile picture or Sonishiri Jessica as our profile picture. <laughs> well, what about you? Like, what were you into? I, I was into, I was more into American music, um, hip-hop, and uh EDM um, and rock music as well. Uh, what about like TV movies? I 
probably have only watched a handful of Korean dramas. Um, I yeah, I mostly like I I did really love Korean cinema though. Uh, Bong Juno and Park Chan-wook's works really. Uh, I remember at a family like a, a family Christmas, somebody put on Old Boy, and I was like I think probably twelve years old. <laughs> And I remember just being like, why are we watching this? <laughs> like, it's a good movie. But at the ending, I was like, this is such a dark film to be watching at a family Christmas event. But it left such a big impact on me, and it made me more interested in Korean cinema. Um, was that uh, part of your Boy was definitely a classic. I haven't mm. seen it before, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's dark. Spike Lee made a remake of it. I didn't see that one either. <laughs> But uh, definitely, I will check it out. But you said it had a great influence on you. So I guess, is that one of your influence to becoming a director yourself? Yeah, I would say I I was inspired by that um, to want to actually give a Korean-American voice um, because I, I was really inspired by how well Korean cinema seemed to be doing and it's done even better now um, at the time. And, you know, as somebody who was influenced both by Korean cinema and American cinema, by people like Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan, I was very much inspired to want to kind of put my own voice, which was influenced by both of those things, out there. So is that what you went to school for uh, after high school? So my original plan was to both try to make my parents happy and study something that would make a lot of money and also to study film and, you know, uh, scratch that itch as well. Um, right. But I ended up focusing a lot more on, in terms of actual studying, on computer science. And to be honest, it was something that I was, I was good at in high school. Like, I took computer science courses, and I was like, wow, these are my highest grades. Um, so I should really, you know, if I'm thinking more pragmatically, focus on this. And so when I went to University of Toronto... I chose that as my major, and my plan was to uh, study film as well as my second major, Mm -hmm. but at some point I kind of realized two things. One, that the film courses just always conflicted with my computer science courses, because they'd be super long, and it'd be like you watch a movie, and then then you talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second thing was that I realized that I could still study film without studying film by making film. Um, by joining film clubs in university. Um, I still ended up taking a couple film courses, but I like because of the scheduling differences, I couldn't actually like really get a major in that. And right. I saw like a big opportunity at University of Toronto to uh, focus on AI because it was so hot during that time and there were such big names there that I was like, I would be stupid to not uh, take advantage of this like current... Uh, just influx of talent that's coming in here because they're attracted to um, this professor that came up with neural networks. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton. I'm really going off on a tangent here. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but, yeah. Whatever tangent um, you want to go on, we'll go on that journey with you, man. Sounds good. <laughs> so you mentioned filmmaking clubs. So did you do filmmaking like uh, as an extracurricular activity? I guess so. Um it wasn't exactly, I wouldn't exactly call it an extracurricular activi- activity as more of like um, a, a 
going headfirst into something that I knew very little about, practically, <laughs> and trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't really go to clubs to to partake in the club. It was more to find other people to make films with. Um, and you so made I didn't, some. I made one, and it took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> like like how long? <laughs> like three years. Oh wow, that's like most of your time at university. Mm-hmm. Did you finish it while in university or after? Mm-mm. I finished it afterwards. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you graduated with what degree? A computer science specialist degree in AI. And then did you like jump right into looking for a job in the field or did you try to give filmmaking a go or both? I was trying to, well, both, but tried to do it in a way that made sense for both. Um, I... I initially did freelance contracting so that I could you know, work on a contract, get some money, and then have some free time to focus on film and kind of right. go back and forth. So prior to Pandoodles, were you doing a lot of directing work, like paid directing work, or did you do your, uh, your tech job to pay for the filmmaking that you were doing? I did my tech job to pay for the filming. I did not make any money on a film until really... Well, I made a little bit, but nothing really substantial until um, after Pandoodle started. And then after Pandoodle started, because Pandoodle's got you quite busy, so how has, the, I guess, the balance been between your two careers since that? It's been difficult. I, <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. I guess right now, since we are in this pandemic, it's uh, the balance is different. <laughs> <laughs> the balance has gone more towards the, uh, the the AI side for sure, because I can't do any productions right now. Well, yeah, is so you are still employed during the pandemic. I'm currently unemployed. Oh no! I've been unemployed for a while now, though, so it's not because of the pandemic. Are you were you uh, always more of a freelancer or? Eh, I've gone back and forth. I started off freelancing, and then I worked for a about a year at a startup, and I saved up money so that I could quit and focus on Pandoodles. And ever since then, I have been living off of those savings. Well, that's that's really good considering how much work Pandoodles is. Yeah, and how much money it costs. <laughs> well, yes. That was implied. Watch our videos, please. Help me. Yes, please. The Pandoodles <laughs> videos are amazing. So I, I got to ask, you are a director, but you've also acted in quite a few of the Pandoodles yourself. How do you feel about that? Like, how does it feel to also be acting? Because you didn't train for that, right? I, I don't know. I feel acting is something I always did since I was a kid for oh, fun. Okay. Um, I kind of when I got into film, the first movies that I made as a kid were uh, self-directed, self-acting. Uh, I got a bunch of my friends around the neighborhood, and I was like, "Hey, I wrote this comedy script. Let's shoot it." And I wanted to act in it, and I also got them all to act in it as well. Um, 
So it's kind of something that's natural to me to do, um, but gets harder when whatever I'm trying to film gets more complicated. And I kind of find it difficult to balance between making sure that what I film ends up turning good as well as my acting turns out good. It's hard to kind of do do justice to both, especially with our timelines in Pandoodle. Yeah. So that's I, been a bit of thinking, a balancing act. Yeah, because I was thinking about, like, you're directing and acting. How are you balancing? Like, I can't, I can't even imagine that. I know people do it, but it takes a lot of talent, a lot of work, which you clearly have. And I have been spending... I, I do take classes for um, acting, but not oh, in do. the... Yeah, at Second City, I, I took classes for uh, improvisation, and I would also drop into uh, workshops at a local uh, meetup, you know, from meetup.com. And um, I also took it upon myself to act in a play last year, and that was pretty fun, too. Oh, which one was uh, that? It was a independent theater company. Um, it was called Ice Cream in the Pastor's Office, and no, it is not that kind of a comedy. <laughs> it was. It's actually created by a these two pe- um, people who met in church, and they were completely oblivious to the potential context of that <laughs> title. <laughs> I actually thought it was that kind of a comedy, though, initially. <laughs> and I brought it up eventually as we were rehearsing, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, you're not the first person to bring this up. We don't, we didn't really understand this, like that. This would be like that sort of a context, but sure, if that, you know, I was like, it's kind of a good thing, you know, it, it, it piques people's interests who are." <laughs> You know, like, uh, curious, I guess. And also people who are unaware of that just think it's cool. I hope nobody felt hoodwinked to come in and like, I'm expecting this, but I got that instead. <laughs> yeah. I wanted something sexy, man. <laughs> cough, cough. Cough, cough. The, yeah, the majority of the audience, um, I'd say like 50% were supporters from their church. Uh, so <laughs> that would have been funny. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was a comedy, and so what's interesting is I, I went in for the audition, mm-hmm. and I did not end up getting the part that I auditioned for. But they said that they liked me, and they ended up writing like a new character into the play to be me. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and I was super flattered by this. I don't know if it means that they just liked me and they were like, I want to work with this guy, or <laughs> if I actually was you know, good at acting um, to them. Or maybe, you know, it's probably a mix of both. Uh, but I was super, super impressed by um, their direction, and I feel like, felt like I learned a lot out of uh, being in that play, and I achieved kind of the goal of like gaining a perspective of how to direct actors better by kind of being in the shoes of an actor and being directed by somebody who had this kind of uh, traditional theater upbringing and like went to school for acting. Um, so I was very, very lucky for that. So I guess moving forward, what are your plans for the future after, I guess, after the pandemic is done? After the pandemic is done, boy, there is a lot. Um, right now I'm pretty much in what I call hibernation. Um, 
incubation where I am just studying. Um, I'm studying both ML and I'm uh, reading and trying to study uh, scripts because I am still not at the level that I think I need to be. I'm still an amateur. Uh, <laughs> so really, I think after the pandemic is done, it's kind of the time when I can collect the fruits of my hibernation you know, and start working on more long-term projects, things that I think I'm going to devote perhaps the rest of my life to. Um, a anything you can tell us about that you're thinking about, maybe? I will just kind of talk about it generally. Um, okay. I've really, I have, okay, in terms of like AI, uh, I have been spending a lot of time trying to break into ML uh, in terms of being able to do straight up machine learning mm -hmm. um, research and development. Um, because I've, I've kind of gone from traditional software engineering. Uh, to machine learning engineering, and now I'm trying to go from machine learning engineering into straight up machine R&D. So it will be something involving that, and something that kind of has to do with the field of storytelling and creative um, output. Right. Um, perhaps something to do with game development. In terms of writing, uh, I have had a couple of scripts that I've been working on for for a couple of years now, and that I, don't, I think may take longer for me to actually be able to really talk about. I, I'm, I'm, but right. hopefully I'll be able to finish one of them during this quarantine. Um, but I do have a short film version uh, of one of them that I do want to produce, which is about my identity as a Korean-American. Um, that sounds really interesting. It's it's it is to me at least, <laughs> but it's uh, extremely hard to film. Well, whenever it does get filmed, I would love to watch it. So yeah, I what think. What about that... uh, Pandoodles? You have you have anything uh, planned? <laughs> yes, we are planning. Um, hmm, I don't know if I should talk about this because I have not talked to my group about what we should disclose and not disclose. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, I, I totally understand. It's all right. Yeah. So I guess but. one last question. Um, do you ever see your two, I guess your two career paths converging, like your machine learning and all that, converging with your filmmaking? Because I would, I would imagine that some of that technology, some of that software development and, and research could potentially be used in the filmmaking process itself, like maybe to, I don't know, the cameras or something like that? I've explored that a couple times. It's, it's, it's interesting for sure. I would like to do that 100%. Um, eventually, maybe sooner rather than later, um, but I definitely need to develop my skills individually in the fields still, mm -hmm. uh, I think, before I can adequately combine them, if that makes sense. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so as we uh, slowly bring this episode to a close, tonight we have some questions from listeners. Yeah, so... 
every, all of our listeners have been amazing. I've also been asking what you've all been doing during this quarantine time. A lot of you have been saying we've been staying home. Mm-hmm. Someone said that during this time they are finishing their film treatment, which Ooh. is really cool. And also we have some well wishes to Matt. They wanted me to personally tell you that they want you to be careful of the virus. Take care of yourself. Oh, thank you guys. <laughs> anyway, one serious question. So. What are your thoughts on the excessive use of lens flares? The excessive use of lens flares. I'm going to assume it's about J.J. Abrams. Um, I think that if you really believe that lens flares help you tell your story and achieve what you want, then go ahead. But if it is causing people epilepsy and straining their eyes, then you might want to consider that and consider other ways to achieve what you want. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think using any sort of filming technique too excessively is kind of a crux. Um, It's something that you shouldn't lean too heavily on. Because, like, I remember when we were making a couple of shorts, um, I was obsessed with sliding shots. I was like, slider, slider, slide this, slide that way, slide everything. And eventually I was like, this is getting old. Yeah. And I need to do something else because my creativity is like being bounded by this. Um, so definitely, I feel like anybody at any level has to constantly be trying to use different tools and different techniques. Uh, so I guess don't use it too much. I, don't know. I agree. Uh, we do have another question, right, Nate? Yep, one final question. I know you've already said this already, but... Uh, which directors are you most inspired by? I know you already mentioned a few, but are there any others that we may or may not know, or any Korean directors that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, like I, I already mentioned um, Korean directors and also like Quentin Tarantino, uh, but another director who I have been very much inspired by uh, has been Guillermo del Toro. His work at... Hold on, give me a second. I'm drawing a blank. Pacific Rim? Uh, no, 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 not Pacific Rim. Um, oh, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's, oh God, I told you guys, movie. I'm bad with names. It's okay. Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> I watched that when I was young, too. It's it's something about films that traumatized me in my youth. Just, for some reason, it influenced me a lot. And I guess that's why I make the stuff I make. Um, I was about to say, it explains some of your pandoodles. Mm-hmm. And so, it definitely, Pan's Labyrinth. It was both horrifying and beautiful at the same time. And something about that really made me attracted to it. Yeah, and, and very much the same with like Korean cinema, um, like The Host. Uh, yes. It was both horrifying but lovable and comedic at the same time. It was so um, good. Old Boy was both horrifying and beautiful. Um, and it's really like the execution, the pacing, uh, it, that, like all these technical things need to be there in order to in order for you to be able to feel these things and get this kind of response from these films and really care about these characters. Um, and also, I've always loved um, Tarantino and Nolan's work. Tarantino's work, I just really love his characters and his, like how he can make these characters uh, so unique and like quotable and memeable as well. Um, and it's just like the pacing and like the not giving a f- about it and how fun it is that I really am attracted to. Um, and with Nolan, it's it's the epicness of it. It's his ability to really make you feel like what you're watching is bigger 
than yourself, but then feel kind of like this feeling of awe as you watch his films. And it that also does have to do with his um. Well, well first of all, like he just he does insane things. Like uh, in Inception, that whole shot of um, Levitt going down this hallway and as it was spinning was actually done. Like they actually had this hallway spin oh, as this, he was going the, the down. The spinning hallway mechanism. Oh, that was so cool. Yeah, and it's like, and the reason I'm in awe, <laughs> I feel like, and I think the stuff is so epic is because it actually is epic. Like, to the with if you look behind the scenes, like, it is really amazing what he's managed to pull off. Um, so it's it's just really like, yeah, these these directors have really inspired me and made me feel like uh, very strongly about their style and in the ways that they have made their work. Okay, uh, on my end, I have a follow-up question to that. Who are your influences in the AI and tech industry? So I had a very close relationship with um, Professor Steve Mann at University of Toronto. Um, he was definitely a big uh, personal influence to me. And he is known as the father of wearable tech. Um, he is he kind of was obsessed with wearing computers since he was a child. And he actually, funny enough, was somebody who kind of pushed me in the direction of exploring film more. Uh, because as I got to know him better, he would ask me a lot, like, what did you do as a kid? Uh, what, what did you do when you were free of, <laughs> um, of society's, you know, the need to make money and get a job, et cetera, et cetera? And it was, it was you know... A lot of it was just creating things for fun and, you know, gathering up my friends and shooting films. And so that's when I kind of realized, like, hey, I think I should do more of that, um, explore more of that. And Professor Steve Mann is very much somebody who is both an engineer who's into tech, but also is also an artist as well. He also has a degree in media arts. Um, and oh, he, wow. he, Yeah, he creates a lot of art out of using tech and kind of blends the two in his own unique way. Um so I, I would say he is my uh, biggest personal influence in that field. Um, uh, I'm also inspired by, you know, the greats within the fields, like even like Alan Turing, uh, reading his first research paper. Uh, I mean, not his first, but his primary research paper um, about the creation of the first his his Turing machine, his computer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to blank on the name. Hold on, guys. <laughs> oh come on. Yeah, what's the name of the movie about Alan Turing? Um, oh, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch? Yes. It is... Uh, uh, the Imitation so the reason, Game. The Imitation Game. Yes, yes, that, that paper, The Imitation Game. When he wrote that paper and I read it, I was like, I loved AI. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you really can see the beauty of his pursuit, um, like the originator of you know this, this kind of, like the reason why he made this computer was, you know, he, he was trying to make something that mimics a person. <clears throat> it, it was a model of a person sitting at a desk with a piece of paper and a pen. He based it off of that. That's how he came up with, uh, you know, the being able to have, you know, like, random access memory, you know. That, that's basically like a notebook that this guy has uh, that he analogizes it to, where this guy's able to write down things and be like, look back at it and remember it, right? Um and his, like, you know, ability to process. And that made me kind of realize that, like, in AI, our, our pursuit of this is really to replicate ourselves and to kind of understand ourselves better. So to me, it's really beautiful that, uh, 
we are doing something like this uh, in order to maybe it's a little egotistical, but uh, to kind of like learn more about ourselves and and as mankind and understand ourselves better and be able to do the things that we can do because and even do some of those things better thanks to just raw ability to actually adjust the hardware on it. So definitely yeah. him, and I could go on, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. But for time's bring, sake, I'll say those two. Yeah. <laughs> so to bring this to a close, Matt, how can people get to know you better uh, online? Um, I have an Instagram, mtt.kim. Uh, Pandoodles. Pandoodles. Yes. Definitely uh, subscribe guys. to Pandoodles and follow us there. I'll, I have videos that I put out on there, and, and yeah, I I don't have many other ways for you to get to know me online. So maybe <laughs> I should work on that. Maybe, <laughs> but you know what you have is enough for now, and it's uh, wonderful stuff. I do highly recommend all of you go check out his Instagram, and again. Pen doodles. So that brings this episode to a close. Everyone, don't forget to make an order from Jing's Bao. The Sangjin Bao are absolutely amazing. Also, go check out uh, Lelando Mitchell at Lelando Mitchell on Instagram if you want to see his mask or buy a mask, or if you're a frontline slash emergency worker and want a mask. And also, uh, check out the Stay at Home Heroes Canada campaign. Instagram and Twitter are at S-A-H-H Canada. Knight, how can people find you online? Y'all can find me on Instagram at KnightNotDwin. And I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Michael C.W. Chan. I also have a website, michaelchan.ca. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay home, stay safe, and as always, stay, stay hungry. Nom, 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 nom. This has been Talking With Our Mouthful with Michael Chan and Nightingale Nguyen. The music by bensound.com. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you join us on Instagram and Twitter at at TWMF Podcast. We have a lot of bonus content like food picks, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, and more info about all the places Michael and Nightingale visit. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. A new episode comes out every two weeks. Thanks again for listening, and stay hungry.